Hey, everybody, I'd like to welcome you to the first episode of the House of Bricks podcast, where we are teaching people to use life's experiences for them instead of letting them weigh them down. And before I get into my guest today, I wanted to thank a very special person that's been with me for the past 22 years. I don't know how she did it. My wife, Vanessa. Without her, I wouldn't be here today and this podcast wouldn't be happening. And Vanessa, I love you, my four boys. The greatest two things in my life were marrying my wife and being a father of four boys. The amazing work that God has done in me over the past 20 years. I want to use all of my failures and mistakes and learnings to help inspire people because it's what you go through that empowers you to help people in whatever situation that they're in. So with all of that being said, I'd like to welcome my good friend, Derek, welcome to the show. Thank you, man. I appreciate you having me on, man. Congratulations, too. Thank you. You have an incredible story. There's so many different places that we could start, but why don't we start in the beginning? Tell us about your upbringing, some of the challenges that you experienced, and share that with our audience. I think everyone has a story. And to me, it's like a hero-villain type of story. Heroes and villains go through the same thing. It's pretty much just how you respond to every situation that happens to you. I remember being 10 years old, my dad being 6'9", a giant, and he was in the Vietnam War. And he had a lot of mental issues. And him and my mother used to fight when I did see him. He didn't live with us, so he used to come by sometimes, and he was really depressed, anger, and my mother was going through her battle with addictions of alcohol. So they would always fight, so it wasn't ever a peaceful place. So I would use my own mindset to how to separate from that house environment. And one day my dad and mom got into a big fight and my mom tried to shoot and kill him with a gun that he owned. She took it out of her closet. And unfortunately, he didn't get hit. She didn't go to jail. But unfortunately, my older brother was three years older, right? Ran away from home. My dad walked out of my life. I didn't see him for 20 years after that. And my mother had, uh, a few months later, my mother had abandoned me, left me in the empty apartment on drugs. So I was, I was a young kid, man, really struggling in life. And what I did was just try to be nice to people. I kept my clothes clean from washing in the tub or whatnot. But it was really difficult mentally. But when I kicked in survival mode, I just went, I went to work. I went to when Dixon had to carry people's bags for five or six. This is 1984, so I turned 11, going on 12. And I remember just actually just being nice to people, man, just working. I cut people's grass, mowed, took a job at a candy store. I was working at carrying newspapers. So weekends, I would get on newspaper routes with these guys on trucks. So I just found jobs, man, to take care of myself. And at 14, I met a high school girlfriend who was 17. She became pregnant. Three months after our son, Derek Jr., was born. I was born in 73. He was born in 88. She was arrested for shoplifting. So I became a single dad at that point. And for the next 18 months, I went back to my old apartment, worked, went to school. A lady next door kept my son while I was at school, paid her. Had to take care of my son while all going to school, playing basketball, doing my job, just trying to work. When you're in survival mode, you do more than what you think you're capable of. And for me, it was never to make excuses. I never drank alcohol, never smoked drugs, never sold drugs. I wasn't stealing. I was just working. And it seemed to work for me. The more I worked, the better attitude I had, the more success I was receiving. So at 17, I graduated 3.7 GPA, class president, fortunate enough to get a scholarship to college. And I was, I was just happy that I survived, man. I wasn't thinking of success as far as financial. I was just happy that I took my responsibilities of being a dad, uh, being a young man who was treating himself, trying to do the right things in the community, 
which was a rough community, but it was good people around me too. I had village people who helped me out, taught me to say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, be polite. And it just gave me an opportunity. So my young childhood was traumatic, but it was an eye opening that I knew I could do more than what I was given. So I was fortunate enough to survive. So there's about 15 podcasts in what you just said right now. And I want to go back to, in the way you even talk about your childhood, right? You're 10 years old, right? You've, no one's shown you, sounds like how to be responsible. What tools were you using at 10 years old? You were acting like most grown men don't do. Being fun, <laughs> getting a job, paying bills, working hard, being nice to people. Like I grew up, you know, in abusive home with alcohol and physical, mental abuse. Those things for me create a lot of anger. And I use that anger for drive and motivation and help me be big time competitor, athlete, entrepreneur. It seems like you took a different approach with that. Were you carrying a lot of anger? What was your motivation just to be nice to people? Yeah, because when I was nice to people, I got rewarded. Uh, me having an attitude of being upset in my situation didn't get me anywhere. And I'm sure there were days that I was upset, but it wouldn't be when I was out in public. Like when I was in public, I let a smile be my crush. And people were like, he's a nice kid. He's, res he's respectful. And those things got me success because people were willing to help me. I'm sure if I had attitude, bad attitude was rebellious or acting out, I'm sure people would have got tired of that. But fortunately, I knew something in me told me to do the right things. And when I did that, people helped me. So I, I, I didn't, I found everything out by trial and error and everything I tried in the right way worked. And to me, it only made sense. Like, why would I do anything outside of that? But, I'm, but there was days when I was in my apartment alone trying to figure things out. I would be frustrated, angry. Like, why did my parents do this? Why did this happen to me? I see bad kids getting nice stuff, and I'm not a bad kid. But I thought of that as a child. But once I started seeing success through my actions and my, my, my people skills and life skills, I just said, you know what, I'm going to do this. This is what I'm going to do the rest of my life until I survive. And that was the answer. Like, it wasn't like a, a written book. There's no blueprint to parenting or anything like that. It's just the blueprint is if you're nice, then, you know, people will treat you with respect and you'll get an opportunity. Not to say you'll get everything, but you'll get more opportunities by being nice. I was fortunate enough to understand that at a young age. It's a great perspective. And so, again, for our listeners out there, some of the things you experienced, most of them have not. But one thing I thing I always talk to people about is your situation is real to you, right? And you may not have grown up in an abusive home, or you may not have lost a parent at a young age or some of the things that you've experienced, but what advice can you give our listeners out there that maybe aren't in that position yet, but not really, you don't necessarily have to have a traumatic experience to make change. I think everybody has a life story. It could be good, bad, whatever it is. It should be there to motivate you, yourself, and to other people. Like you want everyone around you to be happy and successful. You don't want a bunch of bitter, jealous, or angry people around you. So I would say if you had the greatest life in the world, share that experience with other people and do something with them to make sure that they help the next person. I think we all have a story. Everyone has a story, say good or bad. But too many people are aware of what other people's opinions are instead of other people's actions. I've always focused on how people are re reacting and doing certain things. Like people may be jealous of whoever. They may be upset at their own lives, so they're mad at you because you're having a better life. You always have to respond to how you feel about life. And I think I was always excited about what my next journey was going to be. So I wanted to share my story. I was always happy and polite to people. So those people, 
around when we would feel the same way. And I would just tell people, just do what you feel is good to you and do it your way and live your way. Don't worry about other people's opinions. But if you're doing it that way and then you share that, always live a good way and then share that journey. And then you pull the next person around up about you. And that's what makes everyone happy. If you ever notice a room full of angry people, that's probably prison. Yeah. <laughs> and if you had a room of successful and happy people, you had a good function, you had a good company, you had a good party, you had a good home, put good, put good vibes out so the vibes around you. No, that's a really good perspective. And so you'd mentioned a little bit about high school. So when did you start to realize as a basketball player that you had something special? Were you highly recruited in high school or when did that all start? I never used basketball as a tool for anything except just an outlet. I knew I was good in middle school when guys started telling me, hey, the coaches are looking at you. I'm like, what you mean looking? They want you to come to their school. And I'm like, I'm just going to school and play ball. I mean, it's just something to do when I, I get, get away from the stress of home. And when I got into high school, people started talking about college. And I'm like, okay, if it happens, it still never dawned up until my junior year. I was getting recruited by some local schools my sophomore year, but my junior year, I went to a tournament and had a really good tournament. And then all these other coaches started sending mail to our high school. And I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm probably not going to afford that. I'm thinking, they said, well, it's free. And I'm like, I probably can't leave because I have a son. I had a son at an early age. So I'm like, I can't leave my son. I got to take care of him. So all those things were going in my mind. So I never thought about college, man, like it being a savior for me until my senior year. And they say, hey, you can get a scholarship. They'll pay it. Then you can go do X, Y, and Z. Then you can maybe help your son if you go get a degree. So I started thinking about, it. I'm like, man, I can get a better life if I did this. And I said, I started focusing really hard. And that's why my grades changed. I went from like a 2.8 to like a 3.7. I took everything serious because I would be so tired from practice and working. And I said, you know what? I got to settle down. So after I get on the school bus and do my homework, and then I was done for the day on the way home, then I do the rest of my homework. And I got there, then I would go play basketball. So I literally had a full-time schedule. Knowing my senior year, I had a purpose in life. So my senior year is when I recognized basketball could actually help me have a better life. Never thought about the NBA, not one single time. This was get a college degree, get a better job, buy a little small house, raise me and my son up, and that was my life story. So you have a successful high school career. You start to get recruited around your senior year, and then you had some choices at college. Which college did you go to? Yeah, remember, I couldn't go to AAUs or play in any all-star tournament because I had my son every summer. I got invited to Nike camp, to the all-star camp. I got invited to those things, but every time it was time to go, I couldn't. Cause I had my son and it was for a week and I'm like, who's going to watch my son for a week? So I couldn't go to those things. All the first schools were local, like Louisville, Western Kentucky, Kentucky came later, but I had the local normal state schools. And then all of a sudden my senior year, like Iowa was the first letter I ever got. I remember then Ohio state came, then Syracuse came. I started getting all kinds of letters. I'm like, man, how people know who I am. And, and then I heard that they were sending tapes of footage everywhere. And it was like, it became a floodgate. I was like, anywhere close, I'll go. So I was in a three-hour radius. <laughs> that was it. It was like Tennessee, West Kentucky, Ohio State, Louisville, and the University of Kentucky. I was like, if he's in one of those schools, it's close, I'll go. That's what ultimately came down to me being close. So the first school you went to was? Ohio State. Okay, so we'll just skip over that. Anything that happened there didn't matter. Let's just go to Kentucky. <laughs> I went to Kentucky, transferred. After tearing my left ACL up, transferred, set out. We won a national championship in 1996, played with one of the greatest teams ever. Great guys, great team, great coaching staff, great university, great fans. 
to this day. It's just a program that you really appreciate, man, regardless of whatever happens in your life. You know that you had a great experience with some great people. Who was your coach at uh, Kentucky? Rick Pitino. Rick Pitino was our coach. Jim O'Brien with Weston Bennett, Delray Brooks. We had a great coaching staff, really good players. Uh, Tony Delk, Ron Mercer, Antoine Walker, Walter McCarty, Alan Edwards, Jeff Shepard, Nazi Muhammad, Scott Padgett. Uh, there's a long list of NBA guys in there. Yeah, a lot of guys that our true leaders was Wayne Turner and Anthony Epps. Like those guys were solid leaders as you could ever find. So, man, we were loaded, man. We had a great team. And again, we had everything we needed from leadership to loyalty to work ethic to talent <laughs> when you do all that together. We scored 86 points at halftime one game on the road. In 20 minutes, we scored 86 points. That lets you know how good we were. Yeah, I remember watching. So part of what I do is executive coaching. I've coached entrepreneurs over the years, started five different businesses, helped establish culture in those businesses, very similar to sports, right? You set a culture, you set a vision, mission values, and you get people to follow you. Now, Rick Pitino, incredible coach, ton of success. What were some of the key takeaways that you can share with our listeners of how he's able to get? Because I mean, that's a lot of talent. There's a lot of egos. There's only one basketball. How does he get that group of guys to work together and buy in to what the vision is? What he did, was first thing he did was read us a book. And it was called The Precious Present. I forget who the author was, but it was called The Precious Present. And he said, live in the mobile. A lot of you guys are, might be thinking about the NBA or worrying about home life. And he was like, live in this moment and you'll appreciate it even more later, but you'll understand where you're at, what you're doing today. And he kept telling us that and telling us that. So we were all like, okay. So we started hanging out, going to the movies together, going to bowling together. We went everywhere together. And we realized like, wow, when you see this saying it's like, enjoy this moment. Because we're not, who's to say you're going to ever play with this much talent again? And his takeaway was always, man, enjoy each other, be a brotherhood. And he made that perfectly clear. If you guys are not solid together, there's no coach on this planet that can make you win. He said, I'm going to put you in a position to succeed, but you guys need to do that. And it was like, and he actually was telling the truth, man. We actually started focusing on being a brotherhood and we're in group chats today. We just had a birth, a friend of ours, a teammate of ours had a birthday the other day and we always in a group chat. So coach Pitino, he taught us a lot about camaraderie and brotherhood and living in the moment. Yeah, and it does really require that type of leadership to get guys to, to buy in. Like I said, you all had success coming into Kentucky and you see these college teams with and NBA teams, right? They have so much talent, but if the culture isn't there, look at what the Miami Heat are doing right now at Rock, the master of coaching and culture. And Ulstra coming up from, think what, being a video intern to now one of <laughs> yeah. the greatest coaches in the NBA. So culture is really important, the unity and getting, getting collective buy-in. So have a successful college career. You get into the NBA, just fast forwarding a little bit. Now, this is where you and I met is when you came to the Miami Heat. So this was probably, man, we're old, 23 years ago, or no, probably about what, 15, 16 years ago, 2005, six? Yeah, 2005, 2006. 2005, 2006. Here I am sitting in a chair like this courtside. You're probably wondering who's this random white guy who's 23 years old sitting at the end of the bench. <laughs> and so at the time I got the seats, I think Dwayne Wade, it was his, his rookie year. Yeah, we had, had him for two years. 
And here we are showing up, my wife and I, and a newborn baby. So I, I remember Pat Riley's in the huddle calling plays and the baby's like crying in the background. He's like, who's this guy? But I enjoyed watching you and watching the Miami Heat in that time. You know, what a great team that was. But you stood out to me just because, number one, your work ethic. And two, you're just one of those people, like we haven't talked in, you know, whatever, 13, 14 years, you pick up the phone and say, Hey man, it's me. And we're connecting. And so it just speaks to the integrity that you carry. You guys accomplished something amazing that season and leading up to it, your whole life story is filled with accomplishments. Walk us through that season and what it was like to win an NBA championship. I think what happened when I got there, it was more or less, they were going, the team was like a rocky road up and down. And then we had a good collective meeting and got together and guys were just like, we got to start doing the right things and sacrifice. Of course, Alonzo Warren was one of those key catalysts to getting us together. But we had guys that was willing to accept their role. Cause here's who came off the bench. Me, I started like 99% of my career. Antoine Walker did. Gary Payton started his whole entire career. And Alonzo Mourning started his entire career. Four of us was willing to come off the bench in order for us to be successful. That took grown men to accept, put their egos aside, and actually accept what we were willing to do. And what we were trying to do was be the best team. So what happened was guys had a good conversation. We started hanging out more. We started enjoying our time together. And it was just one of those moments where you'd be like, man, you could see the shift in guys' attitudes and guys' responsibilities. And guys were lifting each other up. Like the first game I played when I got there, coach gave me the ball at the end of the game. And I had made a play, hit a shot, tied a game up. Everybody was like, great job. But then the last play, I got an offensive rebound and threw it to Alonzo. And he got the dunk and everyone was still celebrating. Like it didn't matter who did well, it was a team. So it wasn't like Dwayne was saving us or Shaq was saving us. It was like we all won as a team. And it was like, it was like we won a championship that day. And I was like, wow, this is a fresh vibe. I like this. Guys actually care about winning. So our journey was everything that we were supposed to do. And, and I was excited, man. I was super excited. Everything went really well for us. And we made a run at the end of the year and it just made a magical year, man. It, it became magical seeing how guys transformed, grew up and winning a championship. And Coach Riley did a wonderful job. And so once you got into, the NBA, obviously your life was wildly different than your upbringing. How were you able to keep a cool head, a level head, making the right decisions? It sounds like you were making those growing up in spite of your environment, but a lot of times when people come into success, they come into money, uh, they come into fame, they start to change who they are, change their identity. Again, you were had a pretty strong identity growing up at a very young age and handle those circumstances. How were you able to do that in the NBA when life changed for you in that aspect? I'm sure everyone knows, especially at our age, money only enhances who you are anyway. It only reveals who you really truly are. I think when you get out of characters, you try new things, but that's everyone. You could be in a bad neighborhood. You could be in a rich neighborhood. People try new things. That's part of life. You grow, say, does it work? Does it not? But when you continually act a certain way, that money was going to just enhance who you were. So for me, I, I still never drank alcohol, never smoked, never do any of that crazy stuff, never did drugs, never anything. But I was trying to help out people who I thought were going to do well and do better in their lives. But a lot of people did. And I think that was a big difference in us is 
how do we get ourselves in a position to where we're leaders now and not just like letting people latch on to us. And then you're like, oh man, the people are just doing whatever they wanted. So for me, it was more or less, I think we're doing the right thing. Let's focus on that and let's live that way. So I, I still stayed in a format of that and never go. I never went to a club. I went to a birthday party one time in my 11 year career, but during the season, I never went out. All my teammates know he's not going out. He's not partying. Cause that's not what I've ever done. I would have my fun in the summers. And, but during the season, I just chose to focus on the season. And I think that will stay true my entire career. So I just think a lot of guys have different habits, but money just usually enhances who you are and gives you more opportunities to do more things. And so I've noticed this in my journey. People always talk about, you got to love the journey and not the destination. For me, I, I really love the process. Like the journey, it sounds like you're lost, right? I'm out on some journey. Like I, I love the process, the discipline, the accomplishment. When you finally won an NBA championship, and it sounds like that wasn't really even in the cards growing up or you weren't focused on basketball, but when you did climb that mountain and got to the top, was it everything you thought it was going to be, or was it just an outcome of who you were and a continuation of the process? What was the things running through your mind and emotions? I, again, I wasn't thinking of the NBA. I was enjoying my moment. Like when I was in college, I was just having fun. Best time of my life was college. Like I got to enjoy it. No one was worried about money, egos, anything. So I had fun in college. So when I got was getting drafted, I was like, wow, this is different. Then they told me how much money I was going to make. I was like, whoa, that's real different. Like, I, I hadn't even had a bank account at that time. I wasn't, I didn't have anything special. So I got to the NBA and was like, wow, this is incredible. This is nice. Then two years into it, I found out the reality, it's a business. Like I was sitting at home watching Sports Center, just watching TV. And then it said, Derek Hannis has been traded. I'm like, because I didn't have an agent. I was working with an attorney. So nobody even called me. The team didn't call me. Nobody called. They just said he's getting traded. And then that was the end of the story. I was like, wow. So I'm like, they just trade you. They don't even talk to you. They don't say nothing nice. They don't ask you how you feel about it. They just like, hey, you out of here. And I'm just like, wow. There's no office birthday cake for at lunchtime. <laughs> say goodbye to say goodbye to Derek Anderson. Uh, yeah. I don't lunch. None of that. So it was like, wow. And I was like, wow, they don't really even care about you like they like you thought they did. You build some good relationships with some people. Like Wayne Emery was one of the greatest men I've ever met, but the organization still had to make a business decision. And I didn't take it personal. I did at the moment because I was like, wow, they didn't call you. But as I realized, like, it's just a business and stop. You shouldn't take it personal. And uh, that's when I kind of let me just do my job and go on by my way. Because the game of basketball, like literally, if I shot 25 shots a game, I could be a Hall of Famer. Because I was scoring a lot, I would be doing this and that, or not so often. I would be a good all-star because I'm shooting all the balls. But if you play the game the right way, you don't get rewarded all the time. Like I always play the game the right way. Instead of me shooting 15 like bad shots all the time, I was trying to win games, so I would pass up shots, help my teammate. Think about it, if I average five points a quarter, which is not hard for a guy who can shoot, dribble, dunk, all that's 20 points a game. But there's times I wanted to pass, get all my teammates involved. He hadn't got a shot. Let me help the guys out. Let me do what I got to do. And because of that, I was not at my best because I was thinking of winning. And I think I thought of winning. And now when you look at basketball, it's like, what's more about how can you be a better individual? And I found out that in basketball, it's like, it's a different business, which you very rare find like a, a Miami Heat. They're a culture. If you find, all, you find organizations who have a culture, that's what you want. Because everybody, we're a culture at Miami. 
Like I come back, everyone comes back to Miami, but you can't go to other organizations like that. They'll be like, hey, how's it going? Let you go. You got to pay, you get a ticket. That's not Miami. So if you're able to, fortunate enough to find a culture like Miami, you've actually been fortunate enough to play a professional game. And I've been, I, that's the team that I've always held dear to my heart. When I retired, it was like because of my back. But um, if that wasn't the case, I would have stayed there forever. I just think it was just different because of the organization. I found out the book of business, that the game of basketball is a business, unless you find a good organization. And they'll use business and people skills together. And again, I was just fortunate enough to have Miami to be one of those good backbones to have. That's a great approach. And it's what I like about your story is it's consistent, right? You had the same identity from 10 years old. Obviously, there's growth and experience that comes with that. But that foundation that you're able to establish in the midst of a very challenging upbringing, it's very consistent. There aren't a lot of deviations. You're continually building on who you are. So I just wanted to honor you in that. It's a very impressive story. And so talk a little bit about life after basketball. So you had a great NBA career. I know that there's a lot of challenges for not just NBA players, but anyone that has to make a transition in life, right? You have one trade, you're working at a certain company, a certain role, or you're an athlete, and then you have a shelf life as an athlete. You're not going to play in the NBA for 30 years. What is that transition. So tell us about your life after the NBA, what you've been able to accomplish there. And again, your story is inspiring because it's still going, right? We're not just here talking about a memoir of Derek Anderson's basketball career. There's a next phase and a next journey. Talk to us a little bit about what you're up to now. And uh, yeah, I'd love to hear it. I've still been focused on my foundation. I've always felt like that was what I wanted to do is give back. When I first got my first NBA check, I opened up my foundation. I didn't get a car, I didn't jury. I bought a, I opened up a foundation. They just said, I want to help out the next Derrick Anderson. And I just started that. So from 1997 till now, I still do my foundation work. And, it's, and I don't get paid out of my foundation. I just raise money, go around doing events. I live off my retirement fund. I got right now, I just got a job, which is amazing. I was doing foundation work and the NBA asked would I help the mental, be the well, mental health counselor. And it was because of all the things that I was doing. Like I never called, never applied. And it was based upon what they heard about me. They said, he's doing well. He's helping out. He's trying to get kids mentally to change their thought process. We probably should have him talk to our kids. And then I want to, I end up getting a job with the NBPA, which is the Retirement Basketball Association for us. So I've just been focused on, man, of just helping the next me. I realized my journey was meant to happen. It was meant for a reason. We all have a purpose. I wasn't going to be Michael Jordan. I wasn't going to be Dwayne. I was going to be Derek Anderson. And I've accepted that. I've accepted who I am and I'm enjoying my life. Like I have, I tell some of these young kids, you might not know who I am, but I am a happy person. I have a good life. I'm healthy. I'm happy. Like I don't look for fame. I look for happiness and success. And I think that's a different journey of me. It's just never for weighing from what I wanted to do. And it's always just give back. I just, I feel like it's so much pain in the world. I just want to help out as much as I can, do all I can while I can. I think God's given me a blessing and I just want to give it back to other people. I'm still in my foundation work and that's where I'm at. And so you mentioned the NBPA and mental health. And so when I was an athlete and even just coming up in business in the late 90s, early 2000s, mental health wasn't really talked about, right? It was like, hey, toughen up just get through it and push through whatever circumstance you're in, which there is a part of that. But what are some of the 
changes that you've seen from when you were an athlete versus now, like the awareness of mental health, the importance of it. We're all under a certain amount of stress, but the limelight of being a pro athlete or successful business person just piles on the amount of stress and expectation uh, on you. So what are some of the things that you guys are doing right now to help the players in the league? The first thing I do is make sure we have an understanding when I talk to anybody that there's excuse making and there's mental health. Let's find out where we're at with our lives, where they're at. I meet people where they're at. I don't try the expectations of where they went, where they come from. I meet them where they're at and I ask them, are you making excuse or is this really something you want to discuss with? And what I tell them that they're like, what do you mean? I'm like, because I've seen, I was a kid, I was young and I knew I made excuses for my mess ups. Now, if I'm messing up because I'm dealing with something, let's talk about it. But if I held myself accountable, I can progressively move away from it. And now we can work on my mental health. And I think I'm always honest with them because they need that. If you notice one thing about this world now with social media, people will believe almost anything. And if you tell, and the truth, they find it hard to believe. You know what I mean? It's like social media has really shown, has really damaged some mental health people by thinking wrong and being able to just blurt out anything without any thought process. So I always work these, I always do a role plan with everyone and I put them in a leadership role and I would act like them and say, what would you think if I acted like this? And they would be like, I see your point. I see where you're going with it. I say, yeah. So if you're realizing, if you're doing something and you're asking someone to treat you a certain way, show me which way you would treat them. Then. And now they have to really hold themselves accountable saying, it's not mental health, it's my behavior, but here's what led up to that behavior. Now we can have a conversation. Now I got to the root of the problem. And that's what we don't do. We don't get to the root of the problem. We look at all the bad stuff they're doing and not the root of the issue. So I actually dove into it. And that's when I get all those guys to actually open up. Young, old, it doesn't matter. We all have those things that we're fighting. And if you don't get to the root of it, you're just going to continue to make excuses and bad decisions based upon not fixing the root of the problem. And we all have something. Like I said, we've all dealt with something, whether it be a breakup, family issues, financial issues, jobs, social media, whatever it is. But if you don't get to the root of the problem and try to figure out how to handle that, everything outside of that will look like something is totally different than what it is. It's great advice. And like I said, the mental part, like how you phrased it, like there's excuses and then do you really have a mental thing that needs to be addressed with that role play scenario? It's really helpful. And so just as we wrap up here, and again, thank you for your time, man. I know you don't want accolades and thank yous and gratitude, <laughs> but that's not what you're about, but it is good to honor people that you respect. And I honor you for sure for being out here. And I know you're changing the lives of people listening to the podcast today, because again, their scenario may not be as traumatic as some of the things that you went through, but their problems are real to you. And you don't have to wait for a life-ending tragedy or life-threatening tragedy to make change. And that's what we're about on this, this podcast is taking life's experiences and using them for you and not against you. And so I couldn't think of a better person, better story to have you kick things off here. And I know from my own life, the more things that you're carrying with you, the more damage you can cause to not only yourself, but the people around you. Right. And so you've got to deal with those issues of bitterness and unforgiveness and judgment because it's eating you up inside. And then the people that are closest to you 
are the people that you're the most honest with and who you really are. And so you can be whatever you want at work or in front of the camera. But when you go home to your family, to your wife, who are you really? And that's comes out. And so I just want to help people process that. And it's that you never arrive in life until you're in the cemetery. That's the final <laughs> destination. But until that, it's a continual process. Just as we wrap up, I know a little bit about the AOK water. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what your mission is there? What I was doing is getting water. It's like they still serve milk in schools and our kids need more water. I've been focused solely trying to get our kids to drink more water, live healthier. So when they get older, some of their disease problems in their body is, is addressed. So I've been trying to put waters in every school system, everywhere in the world. We're just drinking it. And the AOK part of it is if we, if you gave money, if you bought a water, now some of that money goes to a foundation of your choosing from our site or to go to our foundation and you'll help out other people. So when you buy something, it's actually doing something. Now, when you give people money when you buy waters, it's just going to their pocket. Where ours is when you give money to our acts of kindness water, we're actually going back and doing something with those funds to help other people go to school, kids who want to go, who have health issues, we pay for their bills. We do a lot of different various things with that money. If you're doing an act of kindness, you're drinking water, you'll win all day long. You've given to a foundation, you've drunk good water, you've done good all day long. And I think that's what we want to do, make sure people have, know every day is A-OK when you do that. And so how do people learn more about it and what the mission is and try to participate? It's the Stamina Foundation, which is staminafd.com. We're almost done now raising the rest of our money for getting more waters. And we have some now, but we, right now we're just donating and getting them into places. And hopefully we can raise enough money to facilitate a lot, as many waters as we possibly can. But everybody can go to the foundation page and check it out and see what we're doing. We'll definitely include that link in the podcast description so people can learn more about that. So everybody, I want to tell you today, this story is incredible, Derek. Your life story is incredible. And what I love about it is I think there's more to come. Look at that picture. And that is an NBA championship ring right there, which I don't have. I'm still waiting. I think I spent more money than I should have for those tickets. But, you know, I met some lifelong friends like you and Wayne Simeon, just great people that are about more than just basketball. Derek, I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing with our listeners. And I know that there's people out there that are going to be inspired by your story. And we may not even know what impact we, we do have on people's lives. It's that ripple effect of hearing someone's story in making an impact and then they go on to, to change other people's lives. I want to thank you for your time today. And if you were inspired by this podcast, I would ask that you share it with a friend, share it with a coach, share it with your family. The more people that hear stories like this, the more they get inspired to bring change in a world that needs a lot of change. We're headed in directions that make me a little bit nervous. The more problems, the more opportunity. So that's how we view things. And thank you for your time, Derek. No problem. Thanks, Adam. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's episode of The House of Bricks. I want you to remember, success is not an overnight process. It's the ability to decide, read, react, and continue to make progress. That is what will help you build a strong foundation in your business and your life. If this podcast or any of our podcasts inspired you, we ask that you share it with the people you know, your friends, your family, your coworkers. You never know the ripple effect that your action of sharing this podcast could have on their journey. Thank you for spending time with us today. 
Stay tuned for future episodes with some of the world's greatest athletes, entrepreneurs, CEOs, business leaders, and much more. Look forward to seeing you again on the next episode of The House of Bricks.